You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. Okay, okay, if you haven't already, make your way back to your seats. And if you could, take your Bible and turn in your Bible to the book of Habakkuk, if you're brand new with us. It's an interesting interesting uh, uh, name for a, a prophet in the Old Testament. It's a rather unfortunate name, actually. It's on page 459 is where we are. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19 is what we're going to be looking at today. Our series has been When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Our title for today is When Joy Defeats Fear. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Habakkuk. And this whole book really uh, culminates to what we're going to be talking about today, when joy defeats fear. It starts off with this guy, Habakkuk, who's a a prophet, and he is just calling out to God, and he is asking God to do the impossible in his day, which essentially is, God, would you just bring justice in 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 a land, in a place where I don't see justice taking place? And he cries out to God, and he's just sort of in agony asking for God to show up. And and the answer that God gives is not the answer that Habakkuk wants at all. Essentially, God says, here's how I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm going to send violence. I'm going to send war to your land. And it's going to come through the form of the Chaldeans, which is exactly not what Habakkuk was asking for. He was asking for God to move in a powerful way, but he did not ask for the Chaldeans. Specifically, he's like, God, I never asked you for the Chaldeans. That's not what I had in mind was the judgment of God to come to our land through this violent people. And I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you have really labored with God and asking for something specific. And God said, I'm, I'm not going to answer that or I'm going to answer it in a completely different way than you ever imagined And what we get to see in Habakkuk is when God answers that way to Habakkuk, we get to see a a real person crying out to God in that. We get to actually see how prayer should be demonstrated, which is sometimes raw and honest, and it comes with questions, and it comes with promises, but it also comes with this tension and this anxiety and this fear, and Habakkuk just pours it out. He just throws his whole soul out to God, and he travails in prayer to God, and it's really a picture of of what our prayer life often should be. Sometimes we think of prayer should just be this really quiet thing, or it should be very polite, And, and Habakkuk is anything but polite, and he's for sure not quiet. One guy said, the whole value of the entire book is its revelation of the process that led to what we're going to be looking at today. It's a process. And that's sometimes what life is. That's sometimes the moments of life. It's just a, it's a process and it is a journey and it is difficult and it comes with hills and it comes with valleys. But the hopeful thing, this same author said, is that the Habakkuk who speaks in these four verses we're looking at today is a very different person from the Habakkuk to whom we were introduced at the beginning of the book. He's a different person. 
And I just grab hold of the hope of that because so often we just think we can't change and that we can't become different. We take an area of our life and we think, I I can't really be different in this area. I'm just always going to be this way. And I think we should be hopeful that the the guy who is singing in chapter 3 and who concludes these verses at the end is, is a different person. God has moved in his life through that process and through that journey of prayer to God. And he is experiencing in verses 17 through 19 real joy in the midst of real fear. That's what we're talking about. How in the world do you experience truly, honestly, not just kind of theoretically, honestly and really truly experience joy in the middle of, not in the absence of, but as you're going through the scary, as you're going through the fearful, as you're going through the terrifying, as you walk through the nightmare, how can you experience real joy in such that it even defeats the fear? And just so you know, I'm, I'm talking about something real. Look at verse 17 through 19 with me. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the, yield, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy, that's our word, in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So here's the question I want us to wrestle with today. How do we experience real joy in the midst of real fear? And what can we mine from these three verses that point us in that direction? I think three things we can, we can see, and it's 17, it's 18, and it's 19. Number one, we define the fear. That's verse 17. We have to define the fear. Number two, we have to focus on the facts. That's verse 18. And number three, we have to face the fear. It's verse 19. We have to define the fear. We have to focus on the facts. And we have to then face the fear. So before we get into the text, let's take one more moment and invite the Holy Spirit here to speak to us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Have your way, Holy Spirit, in our hearts. This is your word. These are your truths. You want to do something unique in the lives of every person hearing this. So kind of with, with an open heart and an open mind, with open hands, Holy Spirit, we just invite you. Come have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's first look at verse 17. And let's define the fear because that's exactly what Habakkuk is doing in verse 17. He's he's painting a picture of the worst case scenario. Are there any worst case scenario people in the room like me? You will get great comfort and maybe even great vindication in being a worst-case scenario guy, because this is literally what Habakkuk does in verse 17. So let's read it together. Though the fig tree 
should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the, yield, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, when the Chaldeans come, and when they carry off God's people, and when like God's judgment comes through this, this crazy source, this, this violent people, when war breaks out on this peaceful land, which Habakkuk knows is going to happen now, he's settling into the reality of what is about to take place. And he projects into the future, and what he does is he just defines the greatest fear imaginable, and he takes inventory of all the hopes that in a little while could be completely dashed and completely taken away. The hope of the fig tree, the hope of the vine, the hope of produce on the olives, the hope of the fields, the hope of the flocks, the hope of the herds. And certainly these are all financial and economic hopes that he has, but that can also be figurative. So he's just basically using language of the day for all the hopes of the people. Everybody was hoping in these things. This is what gets you through life, is what Habakkuk is saying through. In other words, everything, if everything goes, every little hope, big and small, vanishes Sound scary? One author says, it's not simply a devastated economy. It's the end of everything that can keep body and soul together. It's Bosnia, Vietnam, and Rwanda rolled into one. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink, nothing to wear, nowhere to hide. He's projecting a Syria-like situation. A refugee-like situation for himself. He's just picturing life looking that way. And he just, he, he defines it. This is the nightmare. Fig tree's gone. Fruit gone. Everything failing around me. Everything that I reach to going away. And yet, as he's writing this, it's coming at the end of a song. And he's he's letting the nightmare, he's letting the fear move him into a place of joy. Now, this is just an ironic thing to do, and it's a very difficult thing to do. But we have to go here. We have to do the hard work of what Habakkuk does. He takes all of his fears and he just lays it out in the worst case scenario. And he lets his heart and his mind go there. And if we want to reach this point in prayer, one guy said, we have to start where Habakkuk starts. He started the book by asking things like, why? How long shall I cry for help? And just waiting in that place and letting God speak back to him. And then God speaks back to him and then he responds back to God. And, and, and when he hears all that God is and all that God will be for him in any and every situation, he gets to this place of saying, let me, let me draw up the worst case here. Let me define the fear. Let me lay it before you, God. And I wonder if, 
I wonder if we could, could move to a humble place. I know it's like Sunday morning and there's a lot of stuff you've moved from and moving to. But I wonder if, if in an honest place, we could just take inventory and define the fear. What are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of happening to you personally? Maybe somebody in your life knows this fear, and maybe nobody knows this fear. What are you, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of losing or missing out on? What experience? The idea of missing out on this particular experience brings dread into your heart. Maybe fear into your heart. Just, the, just imagining that. That there would be no experiencing of this thing. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's relational. What's, what's threatening your joy if this thing never happens? I just want you to pretend it never happens. I want you to do that because that's what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk goes to the worst case. He defines the nightmare and he imagines these things never happening. And he presses into that. And he, he, he really, he lets that press into him. Now he doesn't stay there and I'm not encouraging anybody to stay there. He does not stay there, but he lets those realities mingle into his heart. He, 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 he steps into that. It, it's a crazy thing to do, but it's a healthy thing to do to move into that and to find the fear so that we can take all of that fear and do what he does in verse 18. Taking all of that fear and all that anxiety, all that, that tension and moving it into verse 18 where he says the word yet. You see that in verse 18? This would be a great tattoo idea. I'm not one to give tattoo ideas. But if you were to ever hang your hopes on a word and and want to put it somewhere where people would see it or something, this would be a wonderful idea because he hangs all of his hopes on this, this word yet. Verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my Salvation. Having taken inventory and all of his hopes, he says, pretending none of that takes place, even in the least bit, I will find my joy and my rejoicing in one place, and I will center that on the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous preacher back in his day, and he, he says this. He says, what Habakkuk does in this moment, we must all do. He says, we must concentrate on the facts and we must remember that they are facts. So helpful. We have to do what Habakkuk's doing right now in verse 18. Concentrate on the facts. When we are terrified of this experience coming to us or the experience of not experiencing something, whatever it is that we're terrified by, Lloyd-Jones says we have to concentrate on the facts in those moments and we have to remember that they are facts. These are the facts. That we have to focus on. 
Well, what is he focusing on? He says, I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What has he been doing in chapter 3 is he's been taking inventory of the facts. The process that's led him to this place of rejoicing in the Lord is that he's taken inventory of the facts of the situation of God's salvation. He remembers God in the midst of great fear, in the midst of great turmoil in his heart. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Just scan your eyes up there. That's where the song started. Look at verse 2. He says, O Lord. Those O's are super important. O is a, uh, that's the place of emotion. O, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. This is how fear is overcome. It's this, this respect of the report of the rehearsing of who the Lord is for Habakkuk. And he tells the story. He retells his heart the story, the facts. And he concentrates on the facts, remembering that they are facts. Look at verse 3. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. What is that? That's a statement that we are right here in the delivered land. God left this place and he went to to, uh, Egypt to rescue his people. He left this place. He came from Timon And left Mount Paran to rescue us. God came from where we are to rescue us. And how did he come? When he showed up, verse 3, his splendor covered the heavens. And the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. In other words, God is light and he dwells in inapproachable light, we're told in 1 Timothy. But, but when he shows up, it comes powerfully and it, it must be veiled even in the showing up. But even when it's veiled, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. When God went on the march, Habakkuk is remembering, when he went to go rescue his people, when he went out, He went out in brightness and he went out veiled, but pestilence and plague followed him. Even when his glory is veiled, pestilence follows. Habakkuk is remembering that when he went out to rescue the people of Israel, rivers easily and quickly turned into blood. That was the first plague. And then the second plague was frogs all over the land so that you know, Moses has to pray and then God takes away the frogs. But the frogs are, are gathered up in heaps until the land stank because of these heaps of frogs. That's pestilence. That's, that's even the veiled glory of God, the veiled power of God going forth and pestilence following at his heels. Heaps of frogs and then swarms of gnats and swarms of flies follow and And Pharaoh still didn't repent and livestock dying all over the place. And then boils breaking out on people's skin. And then then hailstorm. You guys, anybody experienced hailstorm yesterday? Talking about major hailstorm happening all over Egypt. And then locusts and then total darkness. And then eventually the firstborn of the land dying until kings, kings like Pharaoh, finally submit. And they say, go and worship Yahweh. Go and worship your Lord. Go and and worship. I'll let the people go. Habakkuk's remembering this this is how God dealt with Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. God can surely deal with the Chaldeans in his own time. 
Look at verse 6. He says, God stood and he measured the earth. God looked and he shook the nations. One guy wrote, his glance startles nations like grasshoppers suddenly springing with disproportional legs. So entire nations leap with fright when they suddenly become aware that the Lord has come. So Habakkuk's remembering that this is our Lord. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Look at verse 7. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Kushan was the first oppressor of Israel, and Midian was the second opponent of Israel. But here Habakkuk is saying, God afflicted Kushan and makes Midian tremble like rocky afflicted Clubber Lang and made Ivan Drago tremble in the 15th round. He beat them down. They looked like they were going to win. They always look like they're going to win. But then God shows up and he beat them down. This is our God in light of the Chaldeans. Verse 8, he goes back to questioning. This is, this is how we pray. We remember truth. We go back to questions that we remember truth. Look at verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? I mean, what was this all about, God? I'm remembering, I'm remembering out loud. Was it against the rivers? Was it against nature? Was it against the frogs and the gnats and the locusts and all that kind of stuff? When you went out, when you went out in glorious, furious judgment... Verse 9 says, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. I couldn't get anybody to tell me what that was, but that sounds really scary. God calling for many arrows. He's going out to war for his people. He's going out to rescue. He's going out on mission. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you. The mountains saw you. And writhed. They, 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 they shrunk away in fear. The, the raging waters swept on. In other words, they moved aside. The deep gave forth its voice. The deep spoke, but when it spoke, it lifted up its hands on high. That literally is a picture of the most powerful body in, the, in, in that known world, which is the raging waters and the, the oceans and the sea, literally lifting up its hands saying, I give up. I give up. When the Lord shows up in power, I give up. Verse 11, the sun and the moon stood in their place. That's doubtless Habakkuk remembering Joshua defeating the Ammonites when God made the sun stand still. In the light of your arrows, they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Why did you do all that? Going back to the first question of, was your wrath against the rivers? Why did you do all that? Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people. That's what he's remembering. That's why you went out. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from the thigh to the neck. It was a total defeat, an embarrassing defeat of the house of the wicked when you crushed his head and laid him bare. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows. The head of his warriors. You took the very arrows 
against us and pierced them with it. Who came against us like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. God gets the victory. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses and the surging of mighty waters. He's a trampling God when he shows up in his power to rescue people, to rescue us. And so, so he ends that little spot. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound and rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. In other words, he enters into this place where I can hear the Chaldeans coming. And, and the idea of this is like rottenness entering into my bones I am anxious. Just the reality. I am anxious about the future. Yet, there's our word again. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. It's not my job to bring judgment against the Chaldeans. That's God's job. My job is to quietly wait, knowing that he's a deliverer knowing that he is good, knowing that he is all-powerful. And the Chaldeans are going to flex their muscles here for a few, few minutes in God's world, and then God's going to flex his muscles, and the whole place is going to shrink back and, and be amazed at his power and his glory. This is what Lloyd-Jones says. You've got to concentrate on the facts Remembering that they are facts. And on Palm Sunday, we must concentrate on the facts of our salvation. Because Habakkuk was saying, he was making it real personal here. He's saying, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And that's how he's taking joy. Joy comes in focusing on the God of my salvation. So we've got to take Habakkuk and we've got to move it to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday where Jesus marched into Jerusalem in furious and determined love for us. Jesus went out, Philippians tells us. He went out from glory. That's what it means when he emptied himself. He emptied himself. That means he went out from glory, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He did all of that for the salvation of your people. That's why he did it. He did it for the salvation of us. Jesus crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from the thigh to the neck. That's our enemy. He crushed that head when he was laid bare on the cross from thigh to neck. And when he was crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53 says. This Jesus was pierced with his own arrows when he was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus Jesus tramples the surging and the mighty waters of death when he walks out of an empty tomb with each step, trampling death. Our greatest fear, is it not? And when he, when he rose from the dead, we are told 
if we're in Christ by faith, we rose from the dead. So we can say with Romans 8, in all these things that we are so afraid of, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we meditate on that reality of God's furious love for us, his personal, determined love for us, joy will eventually come. If we process that, if we go there, if we take all of our fear and all of our nightmare to that place and we concentrate on those facts, joy will eventually come. Patience will eventually come, even in our worst case scenario. So we define the fear and then we focus on the facts. And then look, look at how it ends in verse 19. We go back and we face the fear. That's what Habakkuk does. He it's, not, it's fine to ask God to remove the fear. Remove it altogether. Habakkuk did that already. Jesus will do that in the garden. Father, if there's any way for this to take place, for salvation to take place, aside from the cross, aside from the judgment of God, the wrath of God falling upon me, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed that way. Habakkuk prayed that way. We should pray that way. But Habakkuk has prayed that way. And he knows that God's not going to remove this from him. So he, now he knows if God hasn't removed this from me, God is going to do something in me so that I can move into this. And he goes back and he faces the fear. And this is what we all have to do in times of our life. We've got to go back in and we've got to go face the fear. But we don't do it alone. Look at what he says. In verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. God, the Lord, the Lord we've been talking about, the Lord of all power, the Lord of resurrection, is my strength. And then he says, he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So now he's using his imagination in a completely different way. First, he's imagining the, the worst case scenario. Now he's imagining the reality of climbing through his worst case scenario with the help of God, with the power of God. And now what he imagines is that his feet are like the feet of the deer. The deer are able to navigate dangerous terrain able to not fall off the mountain because its feet are fitted a certain way. And Habakkuk's like, I'm going to have to climb this mountain. A lot of people are going to have to climb this mountain. And the only way we're going to get through is you're fitting our feet like the feet of the deer. And then making me, allowing me to tread on these scary high places where the vistas are beautiful, but the ground is unstable. Literally, he's saying, through God's indwelling power, he enables me to walk where it is impossible. 
So in that, it, I think that's helpful because so often in suffering and facing down loss and staring down our greatest fear, it just seems impossible. And it is. It is impossible. But not impossible for God. And not impossible if God the Lord is our strength. And he, in those moments, makes our feet like the feet of the deer and makes us tread on those high places. Now, I don't, I don't, do, a lot of, I don't do a lot of anything with deer. <laughs> I used to live in the country at one point. I had some like deer sausage and stuff. It's pretty good. I don't do anything with deer, though. Deer, I don't watch deer. I don't, I don't know anything about deer's deer feet. Maybe you do. Maybe that's something that speaks to you. It spoke to Habakkuk to think of God's enabling power in the form of deer walking up, walking up the mountains. But I just get these pictures of like fawns and stuff, and that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> fawns don't inspire me at all. Here's what inspires me. I saw this documentary called Free Solo a couple weeks ago. Anybody see Free Solo? And it, it chronicles this guy named Alex Honnold. And in this movie, Free Solo, he goes up 3,200 feet of a wall of granite, which is El Capitan in Yosemite. You've seen pictures of it. It's the screensaver on my computer. I didn't know it until I saw this movie. It's like, oh, that's my screensaver. Actually, somebody had to point that out to me. Rob, that's your screensaver. I was like, wow, we were talking about this movie. I was like, oh, that, look at that. I've been staring at this guy's nightmare forever. Alex Honnold in the, the movie Free Solo scales 3,200 feet of a wall of granite without a rope. That's what it means to go free solo. No rope. Takes him about four hours to do. And it is, it is it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And um, it, I went back afterwards and I, I looked up some interviews with Alex. He states it in this in this film, but I've heard him repeat this over and over again in other interviews, because the question everybody asks is, are you afraid on the mountain? Are you afraid? And he's honest. He says, yes, there, I, am, I am afraid, but most of my fear is down on the ground. Most of my fear is down on the ground as I stare out at the climb and out at the mountain. And the way that he relieves his fear down on the ground is he rehearses every single step up the mountain. He can literally walk you through every single curve, every single, every single move. And they are the most challenging moves in, you can imagine in climbing. And there are spots where it's just a tiny rock, but he knows exactly where that rock is. He's journaled it down. He's rehearsed it. He, he went up with ropes many, many times for years practicing going free solo. So every single way up this three-and-a-half-hour climb, he's got it tracked and journaled. He knows where the places are that will hold him. He knows where he needs to place his hand in order to get all the way up this incredible mountain. And it just reminds me that, that when God calls us up the mountain of suffering, up the mountain of loss, up the mountain of fear, up the, whatever that mountain is, there are places up that mountain that he is going to help us find. And, and you're not going to know until you're there. And unfortunately, we can't rehearse this a thousand times like, like Alex. But there, there's a sure way up 
that mountain. He will make your feet like the feet of the deer or like the feet of Alex Honnold, as it were, and help you find a way up this crazy, fearful thing. That's what the Apostle Paul said. When I am weak, then I am strong. Through his enabling power, God is going to allow me to walk up something through the fear and through the suffering. And as he does, he's going to enable my feet to find the way up every single step. And sometimes I I think you don't even know it until you take that first step. That first step. So we can't imagine ever going through that or walking through that until that first step. And then in that one moment, we discover he enables. He makes my weak feet like the feet of the deer. And he makes me strong, even though I'm weak. Let's, let's bow our heads and, and pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.